right, what's going on, man? <laughs> Though it may seem strange, young Cam Perrin seems most at home when he's hanging around with a bunch of old black men from a bygone baseball league at a ballpark in the Deep South. The old-timers have gathered for an annual reunion of the Negro Leagues, which were at one time the only home for black baseball players shut out of the majors. And every year, it's the event that Cam prizes above all else. I've never missed one. You haven't missed any of them? Nope. What number was this? This was the eighth reunion and the tenth event that we've had in Birmingham. And you've made them all? Yes. I think I probably would have quit my job if they told me I couldn't go. <laughs> we first met Cam four years ago at Rickwood Field, the oldest ballpark in America, a fitting backdrop to celebrate several players of yesteryear. Back then, Cam was still just a teenager. Cam! By then, Cam had already become one of this country's foremost authorities on baseball's old Negro leaguers, and one of their closest friends as well. This unlikeliest of tales began a thousand miles north and ten years ago, when Cam was just a normal boy in suburban Boston, collecting any and everything related to baseball. Cards, photos, letters, anything. Signed baseball cards? Yep. And you have how many of these? Baseballs? Yeah. Four fifty, five hundred. <laughs> but his interests and his future were dramatically altered when at the age of 12 he came upon a set of cards featuring players from leagues in which only the ball was white. I was fascinated by the fact that it was, you know, different. You know, these people were not like the mainstream baseball players and I kind of fell for this whole underdog aspect. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, greetings and salutations, friends. How are you doing? And uh, thanks for coming by. My name is Tim Hanlon, as you hopefully know by now. And this is Good Seats, still available. Yes, the curious little podcast that is devoted to, say it with me now, what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we will delight you as we try to do each and every week, but uh, maybe a little extra specially, especially. Yeah, something like that this week with a conversation uh, that we've been uh, just dying to uh, get out there to you. But uh, we've had to sit on it for a little while because uh, it's time to the release of a book. Uh, and, uh, you know, we we try to do our best to be uh, promotionally helpful uh, for uh, some of our guests, uh, especially those that uh, fit our little genre of defunctness and what used to be and all that kind of stuff in the realm of professional sports. And um, our guest this week, as you can kind of get a sense from that clip, is Cam Perrin. And uh, Cam is a, is, a, is a fascinating uh, guy, uh, only now in his uh, early 20s, uh, but uh, has uh, lived, if you will, arguably a lifetime of uh, professional uh, sports fandom. And in a unique, uh, some would say unusual and uh, certainly unexpected kind of way, uh, the book that Cam has written just came out last week. It's called Comeback Season, My Unlikely Story of Friendship with the greatest living Negro League baseball players. Uh, it is written in uh, um, partnership with Nick Childs and forwarded by the late, unfortunately, great Hank Aaron. And it is the story, as you can get a sense, of uh, a, a most unusual uh, relationship with uh, a young teenager, now young adult uh, male, uh, who 
uh, grew up as a baseball fan, just just out and out general baseball fan, and just fell in love with this thing called the Negro Leagues, which was relatively new to a young Cam back in, gee, when was it? 2007 or so at the age of 12 when this uh, interest slash intrigue slash borderline obsession, I guess, uh, began. Uh, and this was uh, Cam's uh, uh, ultimate devotion, if you will, that became uh, to this uh, mystical, mysterious, uh, quizzical thing uh, known as the Negro Leagues. And again, I, you know, for for uh, you know older types like myself, uh, you know, we've, we've been through various uh, uh, epochs, if you will, uh, and and introductions and reintroductions to. Uh, what now is uh, sort of commonly known as the Negro Leagues, right? The the, the baseball series by Ken Burns back in the 90s, uh, reintroducing it sort of on a grand scale, et cetera. And we may be taking for granted that um, this Negro League thing uh, and, and arguably plenty more things yet to come from that, right? Major League Baseball uh, uh, finally uh, putting the Negro Leagues on uh, on equal footing uh, in terms of statistics and, and, and its embrace and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, all overdue, right? But you know, put it, put yourself in the uh, the chair in the seat, uh, in the mindset of a twelve year old kid, growing up in the, in in the Boston area as a Red Sox fan, and just you know, kind of being a baseball fan, right? We we've explored this many 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 times. Uh, there's sort of those impressionable years, especially if you're you know a young, uh, you know, male uh, of that age, right? Who you know has sports uh, either by playing or fandom and stuff. That's when some of the original and, and lasting bonds actually get formed. Hell, it's sort of the excuse for our little show, as we've talked about uh, ad nauseum. But I digress. You know, 2007, Camp Heron was uh, 12 years old and, and just, just a baseball fan. And and he just somehow discovers and, and becomes intrigued with this Negro Leagues thing. And, and God bless, I guess, in this case, the internet, because it certainly becomes sort of this treasure trove of... Uh, uh, of exploration. And as you'll hear in this conversation, and as hinted in the clip earlier, I'll describe that in a second, we get into our great conversation with Cam uh, and this book, which uh, should you should run, not walk to get. Um, it's a fascinating tale of a young teenage kid who just reaches out and finds out more about, literally by person, of some of these, frankly, neglected, forgotten the players that played in the Negro League. And not only did Cam sort of, you know, start to correspond with these guys and 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 frankly befriend them, but now in his uh, quote unquote later years, if you can call 24 or 25 years old, uh, later years, I think 24 maybe, I think if I do my math correctly, um, has actually been instrumental in helping uh, a lot of these former great players uh, get some of their, if you will, just desserts. Um, things like, uh, uh, you know, uh, financial uh, support and, and uh, 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 you know, restitution, I guess, and, and, and pension stuff and uh, just uh, shining more of a spotlight, uh, maybe more uh, directly in their directions and, and perhaps helping some of these players uh, get uh, further recognition in terms of statistics uh, or just, uh, you know, overall attention to their stories that either their families or their neighbors didn't sort of fully believe or understand. 
Um, but this unlikely story, this sort of uh, uh, yeah, platonic love affair, if you will, between um, uh, uh, just a, a just a all American red blooded American baseball fan and this curiosity uh, known as the Negro Leagues, at least to him, and shining a light more on this uh, the 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 stories. Um, and uh, the discoveries. I mean, you, you have to really listen to this conversation uh, greatly. That clip uh, was from, I think it was 2017. So what, about four, almost four years ago? Um, and uh, Cam has been a guest a couple of times on uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel from, on HBO, from where that clip came. Um, there is a wonderful TED Talk. It's only five or six minutes long. Uh, and it is well worth your uh uh, your time to find it on YouTube and perhaps other places too, but on YouTube, go find it. Cam basically talks about his entire story in about six minutes. Um, luckily, we've got about an hour and change to kind of get more um, uh, layered in it. But uh, suffice to say, this is a wonderful and completely unexpected conversation with a still young guy who is just has has done so much for numerous dozens and dozens of players in the old Negro leagues. And it still has plenty of stuff yet to contribute and, 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 uh, and bring to their lives. And to a person, these Negro league players are just absolutely uh, uh, ecstatic to have been rediscovered, found, and, and then some either financially or, or laudatorily uh, or both. Um, and we'll get into some of the dynamics of, how this scenario sort of came about, what piqued Cam's interest in this somewhat, shall we say, mystical Negro Leagues thing, uh, why it's become a passion and or an obsession, uh, and this sort of bond, uh, this ongoing and strengthening bond between this legion of strangers, frankly, uh, that that Cam stumbled into, if you will, and has become, frankly, the biggest champion of. Um, and again, this book is called Comeback Season, uh, get yourself a copy, Toot Sweet. Uh, it's by Gallery. It's a published by Gallery Books. And uh, of course, there'll be a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 220. Uh, you'll click that link. It takes you to Amazon. We'll get a couple of referral shekels of love. Uh, but uh, buy it directly or indirectly wherever you get books. Just don't wait to get it because it's it's great. And hopefully this conversation uh, gives you a uh, just a, a sheer scratching of surface of this uh, wonderful story. Our conversation uh, with Cam Parham, we're talking about the Negro Leagues and his unlikely but fantastically interesting story about he how he came to uh, more personally uh, 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 be part of this uh, still ongoing story of the, uh, the great, the wonderful, and um, uh, ongoingly rediscovered Negro Leagues. Coming up in just a few moments' time, stick around. This is a fascinating conversation, and uh, it's great. It's just great. Uh, one quick promotional thing. Let's get that out of the way, shall we? We don't want to get out of the way. We just want to spend a couple of uh, minutes of thanks for our friends at 503 Sports. Yeah, 503-sports.com. Uh, it's our pal Dustin Alameda in uh, beautiful Portland, Oregon. Uh, the website is 503-sports.com. They call themselves, he does, and they do, the king of throwbacks. 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases. Great stuff. It's not only shirts, but as you know, lovingly handcrafted and accurate garb of all sorts, jerseys and, and sweaters, if you will, from, from leagues and teams, pen, uh, 
not pennants, but that's other we, other places for that. We'll talk about those in other episodes. But caps, um, t-shirts, yes. But those jerseys are just exquisite, one of a kind items. Uh, you get your names on the back of them, and yes, a tremendous collection of uh, Negro League stuff uh, in those realms. Again, the jerseys, the uh, the flannels are they're just terrific, and and not just of the uh, the Negro major leagues, but also a whole bunch of Negro minor league stuff. Um, but that's not just all the stuff you're going to find. You're going to find all kinds of other collections there uh, from the world of football, arena football and the USFL, and the WFL, the XFL, the UFL, our pal uh, Michael Hugh reminiscing on all that stuff. Lots of baseball stuff, uh, some ABA basketball jerseys that are now uh, in the collection of 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. And hockey, too, the WHL, the WHA, the IHL, uh, and all kinds of great stuff, too. Uh, some remixes and all that kind of stuff. All of that and, as they say, more at 503-sports.com. And the promo code, again, for 10% off all of your purchases is SEATS. Thank you to Dustin for his continued support of the show. One of us, one of our longer-lasting and uh, uh, original sponsors, and uh, we... Can't uh, thank him enough for his continued sponsorship of the show. And we can't thank you enough for not only trying him out and uh, uh, using that discount code and, and hopefully purchasing a couple of things, but also for continuing to listen, as you do hopefully each week, uh, to our uh, our interview in this week's episode. Again, here's our conversation that we had with uh, with Cam Perrin. It's, it's terrific. And uh, I, I am excited to finally bring it to you. Have a, have a seat. Uh, pop open a cool one and uh, sit back. And as always, please enjoy. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this is uh, uh, beyond an incredible story. It, it, it defies logic, right? Because uh, on so many different fronts. But so let me ask you, I guess, just to sort of set up, um, you know, how does something like this get started? I mean, you're in middle school and this becomes uh, an interest and it quickly becomes a fascination and almost uh, exhaustively so, no? Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, it, it got started um, long before middle school, I would say, um, with a variety of other interests that finally kind of brought me here. Um, the first just being my youthful obsession for collecting whatever was on my mind that week. Um, throughout elementary school, I collected stamps, coins, comic books, action figures, um, Nirvana import CDs, um, rare kind of like bootleg stuff. It was an early fascination of mine. And, um, I would go to antique stores and just kind of pick up little things at yard sales and whatever I was interested in in that given moment, I, I would collect. So we had a couple local comic book stores in town. We had a coin shop uh, one town over. Um, my grandfather collected coins. So I just kind of had this, this interest in exploring history, collecting things um, for the history. You know, when you pick up an old coin, you just kind of think about, you know, well, why were you know, coins pre-1964 made of silver, you know, it was a different time. They did things differently. It wasn't always about the item itself. It was about the history. So towards the end of elementary school, having always played sports, um, been a sports fan, I pretty much played every sport there, there was um, to play. Um, but baseball was my favorite. 
And when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004, it kind of propelled my interest in uh, baseball uh, much further. Interesting. So you're, this is in uh, the suburbs of Boston, right? So hence the, the Red Sox affiliation and affinity, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah, a um, couple times over. But so when do these two interests slash passions cross, right? The collecting and the baseball, right? I, I don't hear in your collection obsessions and or uh, weekly intrigues, um, things like baseball cards or stubs or, you know, uh, programs or any of that kind of stuff, or, or maybe that was part of it or what? Not, not really. You know, back then, um, as a kid, you would go into a Walgreens or a convenience store and you can't really do it now, but back then you could pick up a pack of cards for a dollar or two. And, you know, so I would just buy a pack of cards here and there. I had hockey cards, baseball cards, football cards. I would just get them here and there. Um, I had a little bit of a collection, but nothing much. And once the Red Sox won the World Series, having watched the entire season, um, Red Sox haven't, you know, hadn't won a World Series um, since, you know, Babe Ruth left the team. And it really just kind of captivated myself and, and opened, you know, this, it, the, all of New England really just was all about the Red Sox. It was just the biggest thing that could have happened. And I, the Boston uh, Globe, they started putting out these little souvenir card sets in the newspaper. Um, I believe Dunkin' Donuts had a little kind of thing where you go in and you buy um, some donuts and they give you like a little uh, Red Sox knickknack. There was this pin set where you could collect all the different players. So I started this little kind of ragtag collection of uh, Red Sox related stuff pertaining to the World Series. And then shortly thereafter, um, I started meeting some of the players on the team. And each guy, just have, having, having watched the entire season, um, I really just remembered each little player and you know what you know they did to contribute to the Red Sox getting to the World Series and winning. Um, so Johnny Damon, he had a book signing. I found out about it in the newspaper. We went out to that book signing with my mom and my brothers and a couple friends, and we waited in line for four and a half hours in the snow. Um, we get into the book signing and, um, we'd waited a couple hours and the people that work at the, at the borders book start telling us that, uh, you know, he's not going to be able to get to us. He's got to go. So we start chanting, Johnny, don't go, Johnny, don't go. The whole store started chanting and he ended up staying all night and meeting everybody and signing. And I got up there and I got to try on the World Series ring and get a picture with him. And a couple of weeks later, I met David Ortiz at a local arcade. Um, by the time we got in line waiting, you know, four hours plus again, by the time we got up there, they told us we could only get a picture with him um, if we took it with a group of like 20 other people that were around us in line, which was just kind of a letdown. Um, so I started to get this little bit of like bitter taste in my mouth about just meeting these current players while, you know, the interactions were nice to a point you'd wait for hours. Um, it didn't always go too well at the David Ortiz thing. He wouldn't sign like the card and ball that I had brought. Um, so I started to just get more interested in some of like the older um, types of collectibles. Around the same time, I started when I was scouring the newspaper for um, different appearances with the Red Sox players. You know, I, I saw that there was um, a, a monthly auction that took place in my hometown, um, a memorabilia auction, as well as a couple local card shops and card shows that would advertise. Um, so I started kind of going out to some of those places. 
and just so learning. That, that's the entree then, huh? That's the sort of uh, the, the gateway drug, so to speak, for that's where the sports memorabilia thing starts to hit? Uh, yes, definitely. So so explain to me that sort of transition, because it seems like you it's almost like you you meticulously avoided it. And, and now all of a sudden you're sort of <clears throat> maybe inundated or overwhelmed or you see all the, you know, the cards and the and I'm guessing the stories that come with them is maybe just as equally or maybe even more fascinating. Yeah, you know, at when when your sole focus was meeting the players, you kind of missed so much more of what the whole collectible and baseball world had to offer. And I, I think that I personally got a lot more out of learning about the history and seeing the, you know, the old memorabilia and talking with fellow collectors and really just uh, learning the hobby. Um, and that's what really got me interested. Um, so I would go to this local baseball card shop and everyone else would come into the shop and they would open packs of, you know, current tops baseball and. Um, you would pull like a new rookie card and it would be worth 50 bucks, you know, one week. And then by the end of the season, it'd be worth 10 and nobody cared about the guy anymore. And you'd go into these these auction houses. There was this local auction called Hall's Nostalgia in my hometown. Um, one of the oldest uh, memorabilia auctions um, in the country. They're since shut down, but they had got started way back. And it was only about a mile away from my house. So I would go in there on Friday nights and everyone around me was 50 plus. I was you know, 11, 12, and, um, they would just auction off three, 400 lots of stuff. And I would sit around and just kind of absorb information. And people would tell me about all these old baseball cards and programs. And, and I just started kind of learning about collectibles and just bidding on a couple little things. A lot of times people would, you know, I would bid on something and then all the guys would say, you know, like, let them have it. I'm not going to outbid them, you know? Um, and at, then the memorabilia. I'm sorry. At what point does your family start to worry about you hanging out with guys 40 years older than you? I would say at the baseball card shows. So at the baseball card shows, they would have them every three to four weeks um, at various kind of hotels um, in the surrounding towns outside Boston. And there was this one show in Burlington, Massachusetts. And I would get there. It'd be on Saturday, I believe. I'd get there at like seven in the morning. The show would open at eight. Um, so I'd be the, like one of the first ones there and there's all these men again, 30, 40, 50 years older than me with all their little, their little booths and stuff. And I would just walk around the show and talk with these guys. And a lot of them, um, a lot of the dealers at the show at that time wouldn't, were not too into like modern stuff. Um, you kind of, you kind of have two sides to the hobby. You have, um, you know, the current stuff, the current rookies, um, who's hot right now. And then you have the vintage and everyone at the show seemed to be into the vintage and kids would come in and talk about the every, on occasion and talk about the, the newer cards and the dealers didn't really care for that. So I would just learn all about these different, you know, old variations of cards, 1952 tops, 1952 tops errors, like who to look out for, you know, everyone kind of, um, there was a common consensus that, you know, vintage pre-1970 was what you wanted to collect. That was the stuff that, you know, was rare. Um, mint condition cards from back then um, were the cards that, you know, they weren't really kept in pristine condition back then. Kids would get the packs. They wouldn't put them immediately into top loaders and store them in pristine condition. So to find an old card um, in good shape, you know, that was a, a big deal. So I just started to I, I would go through bins and bins and try to find a, uh, you know, 
essentially the cheapest card in good condition. That was the oldest. Um, and just started to put together some of this stuff and just kind of learned um, week after week. And how does that then drag you or get you into the Negro Leagues, which I would suggest probably have a dearth or very little or more not or not even any things yeah, so in the that, way of that kind of memorabilia? Yeah, so that was another another thing altogether. So I I would go to the show every every couple of weeks when they had it and I, uh, eventually the, the guy that ran the show said, Cam, do you want to help me out? So I ended up going into the autograph room with him. He would have a show with about 40 to 50 dealers and then he would have a guest and the guest would be like a retired athlete, baseball player, hockey player, someone like Louis Tion, for example, Red Sox player in the seventies. Um, people like kind of like that. Um, so I started kind of collecting autographs of some of those guys at the show. And then meanwhile, a friend of mine at school I was over his house one day and he told me about how you know he had collected cards and him and his dad would write letters to former baseball players. Uh, you would go on this website called sportscollectors.net. Um, you can make a free membership and you could see the addresses of former players. You would send them a letter, a self-addressed stamped envelope and a couple baseball cards and uh, you would see who would reply and who wouldn't. Again, none of the modern players would reply. All the older players would reply. So I started writing to the older players. And um, I did that for about six months um, juggling. So then I started going to the baseball card show. I would look through the bins and try to find cards from the 50s, 60s, and 70s of guys who would sign through the mail. Then I would write letters to them, send out the cards I had bought and get them back. Did it like crazy within a matter of months, got hundreds of, re of requests. I would probably send 40 or 50 uh, letters out a week. And, the, and these guys didn't seem like or think that now this is what, like 10, 15 years ago, right? So uh, is this I mean, do they sort of perceive that you're I mean, do they en they enjoy the correspondence factor of it or do they realize that their signatures are likely to be sort of part of somebody's uh, enterprise, so to speak? You know, it was kind of back then it wasn't I, I wouldn't say it was blown out as much as it is now. I think a lot more people kind of have the eBay mentality in their head now. Um, but but one thing I did notice was a lot of these players were just kind of going through the motions. There wasn't really any correspondence. It was just you write them a letter. They sign your cards. They send them back. They wouldn't send you a letter back. And I started to notice that the guys that would send you a letter back were these guys who played like one game with the Detroit Tigers in like 1942. A guy who didn't get as many letters as Duke Snyder or Sparky Anderson or Bobby Doerr. Those guys would just get the cards, sign them, send them back. There was no correspondence. It was really just like, okay, like we're old school. We'll sign your stuff. We're not, you know, commenting on if you're selling it or not. Like, I guess you're a collector. Um, so I started, I was like, you know, everyone, like you could, you could go on the website and see um, who would reply, how many people sent to them, and what percentage of them got them back. You would go and look at Duke Snyder, and five, 600 people would have sent to him in the last couple of years. And you're like, well, you know what? Like, you're not, I'm not really getting much from this. Yeah, I'm getting the autograph, but that's not that cool. When I write to a guy who played one game, a cup of coffee player, um, they would send these cool letters back. So I started focusing on that more, writing to these more obscure players and having a little bit more of a correspondence with them. And then right around that same time, um, Topps 
came out with a baseball card set called Allen and Ginter in 2007. And the Allen and Ginter set, they would feature like about a dozen or two dozen players from, you know, previous eras. They would throw in a couple different celebrities. It was kind of a unique take on a, a card set. And in that set, they included um, about five or six Negro League players. So I wrote to them. I said, this is cool. You know, I don't think anyone has written to these players before. And a couple weeks later, I get these two, three, four-page handwritten letters back. So I was like, whoa, this is – I've never got anything like this before. Um, what did you know of the Negro Leagues then, just aside from the fact that they were showing up as these maybe to you obscure – you know, uh, dusty uh, roads uh, from baseball's past. I mean, did you have any knowledge or or historical perspective, or was it just sort of another sort of branch of baseball player that you were writing writing to for the first time? Um, I knew a bit about the Negro League, not too much. Um, I was 12 at that time. It was 2007, I want to say. And um, I had been collecting kind of increasing my my knowledge in baseball history since about 2004 so i knew about the negro league i knew jackie robinson had got a start there i had heard of satchel page the the friend of mine that introduced me to writing letters through the mail he had gotten buck o'neill back before he had passed away so i knew a bit but i didn't know that much and when these players would write back to me i really started really started to spur my interest and you know push me to uh want to learn more all right. So learning more is one thing, but but going, you know, two or three steps, arguably further. Um, fast forward a little bit to, you know, as you're getting older and these correspondences are going well, this this is uh, could I call it an obsession? Could I uh, what would you call sort of uh, or is it sort of a, I don't know, a curiosity rabbit hole, maybe even history oriented kind of pursuit? I would definitely call it a pursuit. Definitely um, an obsessed pursuit. When I kind of look at it as a whole, I call it just a, a passion project. But that kind of sums up like the later part, because um, at, at that time it was really just a a, a pursuit, an obsessive pursuit. And, and what are you learning in these correspondences? I mean, so what are they writing to you about? They're obviously, uh, to coin a very old term, tickled pink to uh, to hear from from you and as you sort of alluded to right so does the obscure players or those that have been long forgotten or never remembered in the first place right that uh probably are just bent over backwards to exchange greetings and correspondence with somebody who just took the time to actually find them and 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 remember them yeah so the big thing was at first it was not that correspondence it was the the hunt and the chase i guess finding these players because what happened was after i had written to the players in this top set it was kind of the, the the next question was like are there any other players i can write to and there were a couple dozen players that a couple um collectors and i had found addresses for um there was also this sports address book and it featured some players most of whom it would be an address listed and the guy would have already passed away or could not no longer sign so I kind of hit this roadblock after a couple months where I had written to the couple dozen players whose addresses I had. And then I started, you know, I was like, I need, like, I, I need to find some more players to write to. There's got to be more players left. And that took me to this Negro League baseball forum, um, which was just like kind of an old school Reddit-esque kind of forum. 
and people would post. So I, I started making posts like, does anybody you know, have any other addresses of players I can write to? So I started trying. I was my goal was to find more players to write to. And this forum allowed me to to make some posts, get connected with another couple of researchers who would give me addresses. And then there were a couple of ballplayers on that forum as well. And we began kind of exchanging correspondence over email and over the phone. And the big kind of common denominator was with, with the players who I did get in touch with was none of them had stayed in touch with their former teammates at all, but they clearly, they had, you know, some of them had to be alive. If you had looked at the 1955 Kansas city A's, um, the 1955 Yankees or something like that, at that time, you know, over half the team was still alive. Why would there only be like one person on the 1955 Kansas City Monarchs who, you know, you could get a hold of? So players would give me information like, hey, you know, he's, I'm 81. My teammate was two years older than me. He was from Florida. And I, I started looking on white pages and some of these online phone directories to see if I could find somebody who's matched that background. And then I just started calling phone numbers and, and seeing if it was them. So this is in high school for you right now? Oh, this is middle school. This middle, is middle school still. Okay. Seventh, I mean, you're, you're, seventh frankly, grade, yeah. you, what you're describing are journalistic skills, frankly, uh, that I think many even older generationally uh, 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 writers and practitioners of journalism would uh, would would envy. So it sounds like sort of there's this linear connection thing where you're finding people and corresponding with them and sort of getting connected. But then you're also realizing there's a horizontal connectivity that's missing. It's almost sort of like a networking effect. And I'm assuming, of course, most of these players, if, if any, you know, or have any, anything close to internet literacy at that point, right? So there's no... So it's almost an opportunity then to, to to web some of these guys back together and and maybe generate some more interesting stories and stuff. Exactly, and that that's what really pushed me. So it, it kind of one of my biggest, the first example of that that really got me was a man named Al Barks. He was a former player who had somehow figured out had a post on this Negro League forum. One of the few players who did so. He had posted, hey, you know, I played with the New York Black Yankees in 1956. Like, does anyone have any information on my career? We began talking and he told me about some of his former teammates um, and whatnot. And then I got in touch with another player named Reginald Howard. And he ended up sending me a couple like old program copies that he had been featured in. And I saw on that on that roster, you know, Al Barks. So I said, oh, well, Reggie, like I've actually I've. I've corresponded with this Al Barks guy that, you know, played with you back in 1956 and neither of them had communicated. So then I got the two of them together. And then while talking with Reggie, he had told me about another teammate of his named Gilbert Black, who had played with him on the clowns. And so, so my next step was, well, maybe I can find Gilbert Black and start to kind of find the rest of the guys on this team. So while scouring through this forum, I, I saw an old post from a woman who said my father played in the Negro League. And uh, I messaged her and said, you know, what's your father's name? I didn't hear back for a while. In the meantime, I'm calling all these phone numbers. I was told Gilbert Black lives somewhere in New York or Connecticut, called all these numbers. Uh, one person told me he had passed away. I hit a bunch of wrong numbers and, and old numbers. Um, couldn't find the guy. Finally couple months later, the 
the daughter, you know, gets back to me and says, you know, my father's name is Gilbert Black. And I'm like, whoa, like the Gilbert Black from Connecticut or New York. She says, yes. So she gets me in touch with her father. And then I get in touch with Gil. I put him in touch with his, you know, these other two guys. And the chain kind of continues. So I, I was like slowly kind of assembling or reconnecting this, this old team that had parted ways back in the mid-50s. Okay. I, I, before we go further, I have to ask the question, why? What's driving you to do this? Well, at first it was really autographs. Um, I, I was really pushed to just collect autographs from the, these kind of forgotten legends and players who hadn't really been reached out to before. Like I, I was talking about a little while ago about hundreds of people having written to Duke Snyder and Bobby Doerr that didn't really, that wasn't cool. If anyone could do it, it wasn't, you know, exciting. Um, it could be done. So being able to find guys that I, I could get signatures of, um, when I knew nobody had, you know, known about them before, interviewed them before it was, it was pretty cool. And then after speaking to the players on the phone and realizing that none of them had stayed in touch with their former teammates, and in this kind of early time, I was already able to get a couple guys in touch with each other. I figured, you know, this can, you know, this, this can be done on a much larger scale. There's got to be hundreds of players out here who can get in touch with their former teammates who must still be alive. Some of them must still be alive. Um, and then the third note, nobody had ever, you know, none of these players ever had seen any old newspaper articles or really had much tying them to their career. And in talking with the players, I, I realized, well, you know, if you played a game in North Carolina on a Sunday night, by Monday morning, you could be in Virginia on to play the next team. And you never saw the newspaper from that game the night before. And what if you had, you know, a, an amazing game and got featured in the newspaper? They never saw that stuff. And while I was going on white pages and some of these people finder websites, I started going on newspaper archive websites and I was able to pull up some old newspaper articles and I started finding um, these old articles that featured a lot of these guys and they had never seen them before. So I was like, so combining the, uh, the lack of really any newspaper articles or documents tying them to their career, um, not staying in touch with any of their former teammates and not really being recognized in any sort of way. I was like, I, I felt like there was a, we were on a bit of a race against time. And if, if, if these players were out there, um, and I, and I knew that I could kind of do this. Well, I felt, I felt, uh, like I had to do it. <laughs> yeah. Almost like an obligation. It almost feels to me like you're starting to tip towards, this is less about me and my own personal desires and, and curiosities. And, and frankly, maybe more about them. Yeah. And, and at that time it wasn't a, you know, the autograph importance started to, uh, you know, that wasn't the sole focus anymore. So what are you learning about these players in this process? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I was, un, I, you know, have been under the illusion that, um, you know, there, uh, a renaissance of, uh, knowledge, curiosity, understanding of the Negro leagues really sort of got kickstarted into higher gear with, uh, the baseball documentary series of Ken Burns, right in the, in the nineties. Um, you know, these were the first, this was the first sort of truly sort of publicly accessible documentary 
treatment, if you will. Yeah, there have been some great books and stuff, and you know, but but yeah, it kind of had to be a, a bit of a baseball historian or maybe even a nerd uh, in sports history and that kind of stuff to kind of really know. This was sort of like the first sort of, I guess, mainstreaming, I guess, of of this. Uh, long languishing uh, history and, and and gigantic chapter in, in baseball, um, but you're describing really still a a a, a group of players who, um, and again, this is sort of some semi early internet, right? So you know we have to sort of put put this in perspective. Still not really connected, um, not really sort of um, uh, I don't know uh, celebrated and or. Um, uh, you know, I guess revered yet, and and uh, you're discuss- I just I I find it really curious that um, that y- it's a solo discovery that like some of this stuff, some of these connections, some of these relationships hadn't sort of really been done before. Yeah, um, back to the Ken Burns. I definitely agree that was that was you know one of the first major showcases of you know uh, several hours of in depth kind of um, footage on the Negro League. Um, I think that was kind of the beginning of um, a lot of people not really knowing much about the Negro League starting to take a little bit of an interest in it. A lot of the guys that were kind of doing interviews in that documentary and and known to be alive then, you know, some of them did a couple autograph signings and they had a couple little reunions throughout the 90s and stuff. But, you know, I started to kind of see that there was there were a lot more guys out there, you know, the the, the baseball documentary really just touched on you know, a small percentage of the guys that were really out there because no one really knew, you know, um, how much was out there. Um, and yeah, back in, back in, uh, 2007, the internet was kind of young. Um, people really, most of these players still, um, operated mostly through the phone, um, home phones, wasn't really cell phones. That was, you know, when I called people, I was calling them on my home phone, my family's home phone and calling their home phone. The newspaper it's archive. When you, it's almost quaint when you sort of juxtapose it against social media and phones today. Yeah, you you could actually get a hold of people a lot easier back then. I noticed because if you've had the same home phone number for twenty five years, which most people did at the time, um, it was it was a lot easier to find. Nowadays, a lot of people have scrapped their home phones and they have a cell phone, and that those phone numbers don't pop up on a you know on white pages as easily. Um, so I was, I was, I was able to get a hold of people a little bit better and a lot of these older players, you know, they would just be at home, uh, they were retired, um, would answer the phone. So it, I think being able to get enough of, you know, people that answered their phones, um, versus if 99 phone calls resulted in one answer, um, you know, I probably would have been a little bit, uh frustrated. And while I did have that at times, um, I did, I, I think the success rate was pretty good and a lot, you know, pushed me to, to keep going. Can you kind of categorize some of the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the substance of these conversations and these correspondences? Uh, is it happy memories? Is it wistful? Is it, uh, are they, you know, clearly, uh, specific in their memories? Is it cloudy and hazy with age? What what are any themes that sort of evolve in in these uh, oral and written uh, uh, learnings that you're finding? Yeah, so you know, and I'd call these guys up. The phone calls were not short uh, in most cases. A lot of times, I'd call a guy up for the first time, and we'd be on the phone for two, three hours. Um, really, just kind of started with me introducing myself and my little you know conquest of 
trying to interview former players. And within a matter of minutes, most players would open up and we'd start talking as if, you know, they were there on the ball, ball field um, back in the day. We would talk about, uh, in, you know, in most of our first phone calls, we would, I would just ask players about, you know, who they had played for and their former teammates. And they would quickly jump into various memories of, of different ball games. And while there was um, a lot of, you know, the, the negatives as well, a lot of the racism that, that players faced, um, you know, getting chased out of town by the KKK, not being able to stay um, in hotels, you know, so you would just stay on the bus. A lot of players would would tell the same story about kind of sending in the uh, the lightest skin player on the team into a, a diner to get food for everybody because maybe they could pass for white and they could get food. Um, if not, they'd have to go you know to the next town and see if they could pull it off there. So you'd hear stories like that, and uh, there was a lot of bus breakdown stories um, towards the the fifties. You know, the Negro League was dwindling. And, uh, you know, finances weren't like they were pre-integration. So the team owners, you know, they wouldn't repair a bus. And sometimes you just have a bus breakdown in the middle of nowhere and, and they'd be stuck. And uh, so I'd hear all sorts of those stories. And after, you know, I'd speak to a player a couple times, they would start to ask me about myself. And we would we would start talking about, you know, how I played baseball and they would give me advice. Um, they'd tell me about their family and and, um, you know, what they did after baseball. Most players kind of, you know, started like like most young kids, you know, loved baseball, um, wanted to go pro, grew up in a small town. Um, most most former Negro League players came, um, lived and grew up in the South. There were more teams down South. Uh, the Negro League didn't really touch on the Northeast as much or the West, um, while there were some teams, but not as much. Um, most players just, you know, they, they play a couple seasons guys towards the the 50s and early 60s many would get signed and it, it didn't work out or they got injured and then that was that they went on they got another job and uh you know they'd tell friends and family about their days but i don't think i think when i reached out to them and and wanted to hear all these stories and just pick their brain i think it was a i, I think it kind of opened it, them up a little bit more What's this? Blue Chew. All right. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom, guys. Hey, Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets combat, he says, all forms of ED and can help men gain extra confidence for when it's time to perform. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problems here. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil, you say that three times fast, tablets are chewable. Yes, Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and they prepare and ship direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So 
If you could benefit from some, from some extra confidence when it's time to <clears throat> perform, visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And of course, we've got a special deal for our great listeners. Try Blue Chew free. Yeah, free when you use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's Blue Chew. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W. BlueChew.com. Promo code GOODSEATS to receive your first month free. And of course, we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this little uh, episode here. And now back to our conversation. How does this evolve into uh, the reunion in Birmingham uh, in later years? And I'm guessing you're you're getting into high school now at this point. And what do you you know? Um, it's becoming now. I mean, you're you're getting a, finally a chance to actually meet some of these guys. And and what comes of that? I'm, besides just pictures and and a reunion, I, I sense that. And having read a, a whole bunch of your book. There's some other issues there that almost seem like they just sort of jump out and need even deeper treatment than what you're what you're doing thus far. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, by my freshman year in high school, it's now about 2009. Um, my daily uh, life pretty much consists of getting all my schoolwork done in school. Um, you know, I'll do homework for one class in the in another class, come home and instantly just start calling players going on newspaper websites and trying to find old articles, which I would kind of use to, to pinpoint how old a player might be when I'm trying to track somebody down. And then I'd call players up. If I found a new guy, I would interview him and then get him in touch with some of his other teammates. So I'm starting to like assemble these little circles of former team teammates reconnecting, um, between 2008 and 2009. So my eighth grade to freshman year in high school, I'd probably found 40 to 50 players who I would say previously had not been interviewed about their days in the Negro league. Um, so I'm starting to, to gather this huge rotation of guys who I would call all the time. We would maintain, uh, friendships. Uh, I started to get pretty close with a lot of these guys. And at the same time, I got in touch with this researcher named Dr. Leighton Ravel in Texas. And at the time I'm 13, Dr. Ravel's in his, late fifties. And I had, I'd kept seeing his name come up online in various articles. And so I called him up. He thought I was doing a school project and I just kind of had to tell him, well, actually, you know, I, you know, it's start, it's much more than that. And when we started talking, we quickly, uh, we quickly clicked and over the coming months, Dr. And I, Dr. Ravel and I got really close. We would talk on the phone multiple times a day. I just, I, I, I would just call him every time I found any new piece of information, which at that time was, was every couple hours. Um, and we started to realize towards the end of 2009 that there were a lot more players known to be alive than we realized. Back when he started getting into this back in the 80s and 90s, he was told there's only a couple hundred players alive. No one really kept like a real database on how many players were living. Um, you couldn't just go on Wikipedia and type in a player's name and see their birth date or when they had passed away. There was really nothing like that. You could play five seasons in the, in the Negro League, played f in five All-Star games, and nothing would come up. Um, 
No, you might see the stats now in, on seam heads, but it still doesn't tell you about like where they live or if they're still alive, that kind of stuff. Exactly. So Dr. Avell and I were like, well, you know what? There's a lot of guys out here. And he, he said, I think we should, we should do something. We, we have this little organization down in Birmingham, Alabama. He had a good friend by the name of Chef Clayton Sherrard, who was a former bat boy with the Black Barons back in the 1950s in Birmingham. And there were a couple of these like little player organizations that were just made up of living players who would get together and they would go out to a baseball game and sign autographs or speak at schools. So there was just a little kind of community in Birmingham. He said, I think we, we've had this, this banquet every year for some of these players down in Birmingham. Maybe we can do a little bit more um, in, in, the, in the next year. Cam, you know, you've found a bunch of these guys who you've, you know, become quite close with. And I have a bunch of guys that I know. Let's see if we can do some sort of week-long reunion of some kind. So I said, okay, I'm, <laughs> I'm in. So him and Chef, um, they started kind of getting the getting the pieces um, of the puzzle together. Meanwhile, you know, I was I was 13 turning 14. I knew nothing about event planning or anything. I just figured, okay, like we have an event in the works. I'm just going to call up all these baseball players and tell them to come to Birmingham, you know, on Memorial Day when we have this event. So, no no invites, nothing. Literally just phone calls. So I called dozens and dozens of players and at that time you had some players who were in their late 60s who had played with the Kansas City Monarchs in 1962 or 1963 during the final season of the Negro League. And then you had guys that were 90 years old um, who had played in the 30s. So I would call everyone up and some couldn't make it. Some some players, you know, had daily dialysis or, you know, other severe ailments. And um, but many said, yeah, I'll come. Oh, you told me my teammates going to be there. And the players would have their the players would have phone calls on their own with each other. And they said, oh, are you, are you going to go to this event? They say, yeah. And the other guy would say, yeah, you know what? I'll be there too. So I just kept inviting as many players as I could. And finally, I would say about a month before the event in um, May, 20, May 2010, um, Dr. Ravel sent out invites to all the guys that I, uh, that I invited. I had about 30 or so players who told me they'd go. And Dr. Ravel and, and Chef, they figured, you know, what's the chance these guys will actually show up on you know, Cam's word <laughs> and uh, many of whom lived 10, 12, 15 hours away. So we had the event. I ended up taking a week off of school, my sophomore year of high school. And we went down there. I went down there with my mom and all the guys that told me they'd go went. <laughs> and we had this big event, week long of uh, activities. We stayed in downtown Birmingham, Alabama, and we had about uh, 60 or 70 players, I would say, that showed up. Who's more astonished? You, that all these guys showed up or them, this, you know, punk white kid, you know, from the Boston suburbs and still not even halfway through high school is even remotely interested in, in their history and plights. I would say it was probably 50, 50. I mean, to me, I was very, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I just figured if I invited players, you know, they would come. If you build it, they will come. Um, field of dreams reference. Um, and then I think the players were just also just jaw dropped at the fact that, you know, they came down to this reunion. And I, I was in I was, too, in the sense that Dr. Ravel and Chef Clayton had rented out this entire hotel in Birmingham and they were able to throw together uh, a big, big reception and a banquet. And 
We had a big game at the Rick, at Rickwood Field in Birmingham, which is, uh, I believe, Legend, America's Legendary. oldest. Yeah, yeah, Amer- America's oldest operating ballpark. All the players went out on the field and got honored, and we had numerous guys who had played together back in the day that were able to see each other for the first time in fifty plus years. I remember uh, the, I would say the the coolest interaction was, I get to the hotel and um, Gilbert Black shows up. And he was one of the one of the first guys that I had found several years prior. And I say, Gil, like you got to meet Reggie Howard, you know. I the, it had now been a, probably about two years or so since I had connected them back around 2008. So they they like lock eyes and they hadn't seen each other since 1956 and they just start chatting and about an hour later I come back up to Gil and he's still standing outside the hotel holding his suitcase. He hadn't even put his suitcase down because he was just so locked into the moment, just seeing Reggie for the first time since 1956. It was crazy. How does that make you feel? I mean, in many respects, you have no connection to these guys, yet you're actually, in many respects, responsible for reconnecting these guys. So I just find it fascinating. I mean, do you find yourself becoming a sort of a master of ceremonies and the ultimate sort of connector of that kind of stuff? It's almost like you're... uh, uh, you're 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 becoming a social director for these guys and these and their legacies. Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of what it came to be. I would say, you know, while I'm not a former baseball player, I'm just you know this young kid from outside of Boston. I think, you know, while the players were able to get connected with their former teammates and kind of bring baseball back into their lives and talk about their old days and reconnect and come out and sign autographs and do things that they hadn't done in decades, I kind of become this facilitator in all of it, which was it kind of gave me my own unique part. And they, they, all these players really accepted me for that. You know, they didn't have to, I was just intruding on, on their lives to get an autograph or call them up and pick their brain for whatever reason. But they, you know, they took me in and all these players have become really, you know, great friends of mine. And, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's round third base here and 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 get into sort of the home stretch here. Um this takes a turn for uh, uh toward, towards more uh seriousness, right? A, a, sort of a, a, as a result of uh this reunion and beyond you go deeper even into this into trying to right some wrongs, right? Uh that you that you've discovered and you're hearing. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, we'll do. So Several years prior to the first reunion, I, I became close with a player by the name of Bob Mitchell, who had played with the Kansas City Monarchs in the early 50s. And Bob Mitchell was pretty much a uh, one-man uh, team trying to work with Major League Baseball to get former baseball players uh, pensions, retirement benefits. Going back to the, the mid-90s, Major League Baseball, and I believe Faye Vincent, the, commis- the commissioner at the time, had teamed up with Joe Black, former Brooklyn Dodger and Negro League player, to start a pension program. And at the time, Joe Black um, was tasked with the the role of trying to round up a bunch of players who could qualify for this pension. But he didn't know everyone that had played in the Negro League. He only played for several years in the mid-40s before entering the majors. And this pension program never really got out there to as many people as to as many players that qualified as it could. 
so Bob Mitchell, he would network with former players that he knew and, and, you know, players that other players knew, and he would, he would try to get pensions for them. And I didn't know much about it, but he would always fill me in about it. Um, so he started to get sick and, and not work on the pensions as much. Um, he was able to get some guys them. Um, but, but he, he didn't really have the, the documentation necessary. And what that was, was you needed four years of primary source documentation to prove that you had played in the Negro league. Major league baseball needed newspaper articles, programs, dated photographs, contracts, anything that could really prove um, that you had played in the Negro League for those four years. So in most cases, you needed a newspaper article from 1950, 1951, 1952, and 1953, and that would be four years. So Dr. Ravel, he calls me up about a couple weeks before this first reunion and says, Cam, you know, Major League Baseball got a letter from a guy named Paul Jones who says he played with uh, the Cleveland Buckeyes, among others, in the late 40s and early 50s. He was asking about a pension. And we had never heard of Paul Jones. We didn't know he was alive. Dr. Vell says, Cam, can you, can you look into this? I found three years on him. Can we find four? So I start digging and looking through numerous articles. And after a couple of weeks, I'm able to find this uh this fourth year for Paul Jones. So while we're at the reunion, I give I give Dr. Ravel this newspaper article and he says, okay, this, you know, this looks good. Like I Paul should be getting a pension. So on the final day that I'm at the reun- reunion, Dr. Ravel announces publicly at this reception that you know Paul Jones is is likely going to be getting a pension. And from there it really just opened up the floodgates. Here we are at the Alabama Sports Hall of Fame in Birmingham and we have about 50 to 60 former players present and we make this public announcement that you know Paul Jones is going to be getting a pension and now every other player in attendance says whoa like you know do I qualify like do I qualify so everyone's coming up to me asking me and I you know I didn't really know much about the thing at the time so we we close out the reunion and I now have all these contacts of players and all these notes like, Hey, you know, you got to look into this guy's pension. Does this guy qualify? Does this guy qualify? So we leave the reunion, um, about a week or so later, it's, you know, confirmed Paul Jones is going to be getting a pension. He ends up getting over a hundred thousand dollars, um, which was just mind blowing $10,000 a year plus back pay back to 2004 when the, when the program, when the new version of the program was started. And now I, in addition to that, I have a kind of a, case log of all these other possible guys that might qualify for pensions that we hadn't really thought about before. So that, that really was the next, um, the next frontier to, uh, to take on who qualifies. Can we get them a pension? Um, et cetera. How how do you find time then now? I mean, you know, that's like a full-time nonprofit job, right? Doing that kind of stuff. Like how do you find time balancing your high school studies and and arguably a full time job, if you will, consuming at that, uh, at the very least, to 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 do this kind of stuff because this this I, I got a sense I, my sense is this is this was requires quite a lot of investigation, a lot of time, a lot of dead ends, um, you know, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I mean, three p.m. to midnight plus weekends, I would say, is a full time job. So. I, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'd say definitely a full-time job, which I was able to pull off um, after school, 
and on weekends. Um, How many guys do you think you you were directly or were partially responsible for getting pensions from this program? Do you think over forty? It 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 took a long time. Right after the Paul Jones pension, uh, we were able to to probably get about five or six other guys' pensions. People that you know we. We just didn't even realize they qualified. And after looking through newspaper articles, Ravel and I were able to get four years of proof and submit their forms, and they were approved. And then after a couple years, by like 2011, 2012, it starts to get a lot harder. We've kind of gone through a lot of the guys. Um, They've either qualified. um, They're kind of at a standstill. Let's say we have two or three um, verified years, but we, but we need a fourth and we just can't find it. And then, you know, some guys had passed away or some guys didn't qualify. The worst were, you know, the guys that we thought qualified or I thought qualified. And then they were, they were declined. We had a one guy that I had found Randall Randolph bow and he was in his mid nineties and I found four years and then major league baseball turned it down. They said, you know, one of the four years is a spring training game. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Um, you know how hard it is to find four years where they mention Randolph Bow in the newspaper articles. And the problem is, is when you, especially when you're a pitcher and you're not playing in every game and many of the team, many of the town's newspapers and you know, they wouldn't write about every player in a team or every player in a game. It's nothing like it was with the major leagues. Oftentimes they would just say, you know, Kansas City Monarchs beat Indianapolis Clowns four to two. So-and-so hit a home run and that's all you would get. So Bo got declined and we had, I had several others that got declined and then, so it really started to slow down. Um, well, there also probably, we, there also probably, probably chasing, uh, uh, you know, one day appearances at, at these, uh, you know, non-league games, right? Cause that was a huge part of the Negro league experience for a bunch of years, right? Where there was the barnstorming and, and, and all that other stuff, which was quote unquote unofficial, right? So and God forbid they get injured in those quote unquote performances or or non-league games, right? And that only, you know, pushes them out from, you know, maybe being mentioned in one particular newspaper during a league game, right? So it 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 seems like a couple of literally and figuratively strikes against them in some respects. Yeah. Um Major League Baseball was usually okay about saying if it was a non-league game. Um, but you know, you were confirmed to have been playing for the team in that year, then they're going to kind of give you a pass. Like, like it's okay because yes, you know, at that time, you know, you could play a hundred games in a season and maybe only half of them would be league games or a third of them. They weren't too strict on that, but the spring training wasn't, you know, during the season. So I understood that. Um, but yeah, several strikes against them. Um, and in many cases, like for example, one player who had come up to me that night after Paul Jones and his little ceremony at the, in Birmingham, Eugene Scruggs, he had come up to me and he, he's featured in the book and he, he, you know, recounts, um, a lot of his time in the Negro league and, and how I was finally able to, uh, get him a pension. But Eugene Scruggs, his last name is not super common and the newspapers just always butchered his last name. Um, they would call him Scraggs, Smith, Scruggs, spelled five different kinds of ways. So when you're going through articles, it was like it was very difficult to say, oh, was that him? Did they spell his name wrong? Like, did they call him something else? Um, and finally, after six years, I was finally able to find a fourth year for him. But 
he just kind of got unlucky because he had seen all of his former team, a lot of his former teammates get pensions and he just, we couldn't find the fourth year and he was just on, on standby waiting. Well, I, I, here, here's a silly question. W- what do they say once you presented them with the evidence and got them their pensions? <laughs> I, I think they're, you know, every player that has got a pension has been extremely grateful. Um, you know, when I look at it, it's it's something that I'm able to being a younger individual who grew up on the Internet and and is and knows how to navigate this stuff, being able to do that when a lot of these players are, you know, they don't they don't even know where to begin. I think, um, you know, they really appreciate my, you know, ability to be able to do this and, and lock in a pension for them. Um in some cases, you know, player, uh, players have been able to pay for their grandkids' um, college tuitions or, you know, buy a new house or uh, retire. Eugene, he was finally able to retire um, in his late 70s after getting a pension. So that was amazing. And they're all just incredibly grateful. Well, it's life-changing stuff. I, You know, we, we've had some um, some interesting conversations around the uh, the old ABA, American Basketball Association, which is an, uh, still an ongoing thing. Uh, and there is... Uh, it's it's apparently very challenging, but there's there's a a group of ABA players that uh, are are trying to make the strongest case that they can to be included into NBA pensions as well. And you know th- this is you know not uh, it, this becomes a more and more common theme the more deep we go into these various uh, leagues and and histories and stuff. Especially and, and Negro League is a little bit different, but but especially when there was an absorption or a merger or those kinds of things where. Uh, teams and and players and franchises and all that kind of stuff were were inherited or brought in or or essentially subsumed into the bigger entity. Um, there are a lot of loose ends there, right? And and this is not only that, but it's also a story of, frankly, just how big business sports has become. Literally in the last, you know, two decades, right? It's just it, it's it, it's a non-starter. I mean, in, beyond the pale, you know, come the '40s and the '50s, right? Um, this is life-changing stuff for guys who. You know, many of which, you know, we talk the Negro League stuff. They were just happy to be there. But, you know, this is it's beyond beyond all of that. And I just got I I can't imagine how eternally grateful they must have each to a person have been for for those success stories and and maybe even the appreciation for trying on their behalf, uh, though, not maybe succeeding in certain cases. Yeah. Um, I think the craziest story, too, is a player who turned down a pension. Okay. Do tell. So uh, there was a player by the name of Alfred Cartmill who had played four seasons with the Kansas City Monarchs in uh, the late '40s and early '50s, and he he was one. Of, he was the only person who ever turned one down that I encountered. But you know, it it just really showed me in the end that you know while a large percentage of players are grateful to have played in the Negro League um, or the minor leagues or both or what have you. Um, at the end of the day, while they did have many struggles and, you know, they did encounter um, racism and hardship along the way, they still, you know, they're still eternally grateful for having the chance to play professional baseball. And Alfred Cartmill, he just, he, I would say he just never got over it. And he just, at this point in his life, he just decided he, he did not want to be associated with baseball anymore. Um, those times were beh- were behind him. He never made the majors. He played in the minor leagues for a long time. He felt like Major League Baseball um, took away that chance from him. 
and he just he didn't want the pension. That's powerful stuff. Um, uh, and but it but it's telling, right? And and the more we learn about the leagues and, and the players and, and the motivations and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, yeah, I. I guess I don't want to over sort of generalize this, but I, in a lot of respects, it seems like a lot of this wasn't about the money. Um, although, right, also was part of maybe they did want to make the money and be professionals and were denied the chance. Right. So it's there's sort of twin evils here and 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 a whole bunch of other you know things that sort of yeah, who knows the, the, the psyche. I'm sure every individual has their own or had their own reasons uh, for playing. Uh, their opportunities, the lack thereof, um, and frankly, just their uh, the the details and the information that they needed to kind of uh, sort of be at least made somewhat whole in their uh, in their later years. All right, so all right, let, let's just fast forward to now today. Why don't you tell our audience sort of what your uh, what your life is now? Did you was there a college in between? Did you you know sort of what's what's sort of happened with this story? I, I got to think some of the um, you know, a lot of the players, sadly, are, are moving on in, in uh, you know, uh, on this uh, more from this mortal coil. Um, uh, what uh, what uh, continues and lingers from all of this incredible stuff that you did as a, as a younger gent? Yes. Yeah, so we, we had the first reunion in 2010 and that the success of the first reunion resulted in it becoming a, a yearly tradition. So we've had a reunion every year since. Um, with the exception of 2020 due to COVID. Um, we've also had several other um, various events in Birmingham in between. Uh, in 2015, the Negro Southern League Baseball Museum was built in Birmingham. So we now have a new museum, which is uh, filled with artifacts from primarily Dr. Ravel's collection and a little bit of mine, mostly just signed baseballs. Um, so we now have just a, a huge museum dedicated to uh, preserving this part of history, um, which is just amazing to see that get built. And, you know, many of the players living in Birmingham just go there and, and participate in events. And we have events at our reunion there. Over the years, we've we've had players have had baseball cards made. Going to the reunion um, has disconnected them with other players and other possible events. So a lot of the guys who have come to the reunions have now, you know, they go into schools and talk about their their former playing days and stuff like that. So baseball has really kind of come back into their life a lot more in that regard. Um, after high school, I went down to college um, in New Orleans. I went to Tulane University. Uh, that sure. was that was fun. Green fun wave. Fun. Let me guess. Yeah. History major? Uh, business. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, business. Um, so in the meantime, in, in order to support all this research stuff, um, I started flipping memorabilia on the side. I started going to these baseball card shows and auction houses, and I would buy stuff, and I started flipping it at these memorabilia shows on the spot. I'd buy something at one booth, sell it to another for double the price, or buy it there and then go home and sell it on eBay. Uh, so that, that business kind of took off, and I did that through my later years in high school. Um, in college and that uh that's now my full-time business so after i graduated college I, I got a job at wme uh william morris endeavor um at a talent agency in beverly hills so i said you know what screw it let's let's give this a go so i was an assistant at an agency for a year we i was i worked in the speaking engagements department booking speaking engagements for a wide variety of 
celebrities, chefs, authors, uh, political figures. Um, and then after, after about a year there, I just decided it wasn't for me. And I uh, decided to go back to my memorabilia stuff. And I've been doing that full time now since 2017. What, what do you think you might have left in this Negro League's journey, if anything, uh, besides the reunions? Are, are there any, uh, obviously we see the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. I mean, there's so much stuff that, and I see more and more uh, tributes. We had to, uh, Jerry Cohen from Ebbetsfield Flannels, who's a, a big longtime uh, devotee towards uh, uh, painstaking research and re uh, reproductions of, of what, uh, you know, Lots of different sports, but 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 certainly Negro leagues, uh, jerseys and uniforms and caps and stuff might have been. Do, do you ever sort of think that there are some, um, shall we say, equitable business opportunities to maybe uh, further not only the history and the knowledge, but um, fill the coffers not only of these museums but perhaps of the uh, the the players still around and or their. Um, you know, and their progeny in the years to come to sort of uh, keep the her the history and the spirit and, and frankly, further investigation to these leagues and these players alive. Uh, first of all, yeah, I think Ebbets Field does a great job of making, you know, reproduction jerseys and hats that, you know, look just like, you know, they did back in the day. Um, as for business opportunities, I, I really don't know. I kind of, I've kind of always separated my business life from um, trying to um, trying to look at ways to make um, money with the Negro League stuff. I'm sure, you know, in recent years, we have lost a lot of players. Um, many of the players who used to attend the reunions have, you know, sadly now passed away. So the reunions, you know, have been getting smaller um, in recent years. Um, I, I would say that as more and more players pass away and with the recent um, attention and news that Major League Baseball has uh, brought to the Negro League with their recogni recognition of statistics. Long I would overdue, say, right? Yeah, yeah, very long overdue. I would say with that, I think the players that are still here with us will probably, you know, have, have a lot more interest um, put towards them. I'm sure once COVID subsides, uh, a lot more teams and organizations, you know, will be wanting to hear from these players. Well, look, I, I, and I, you know, I wish you tremendous success with this book. I, I, you know, uh, I, I just, I certainly hope that the uh, the COVID situation does um, we gain some relief for that, so that you can maybe do uh, some more in person kinds of things. I, I can't imagine. I can, I can imagine the uh, the the press. Uh, junket that you're going to be on virtually i i, I can hear now <laughs> an npr interview i i, I could i just all kinds of stuff um because it's a fascinating story just you know as a personal journey number one um but number two um you know the intergenerationalness of it the interracial part of of the story the uh the passion uh i.e not a profit driven thing or just you know uh, you know childhood and early adulthood uh, uh, curiosity turned, um, passion turned, uh, crusade, if you will, right. Uh, righteous at that. Um, there's a whole bunch of dimensions to this and I, it, it's a, it's, it, it's a, it's a great read. I, I wish you nothing but the best, uh, with it, but I, I do think, you know, that you, as your, your last sort of sentence is there, it, it does, it does kind of worry certainly me and I'm sure you too, a little bit, right. 
as these players get older, right, they're not making more of them, right? And it's almost like World War II veterans or, or others of, of generations that made their marks and or their dent in history. And, and you know, once the last of them, uh, you know, leave us, uh, it becomes even more challenging and I would argue doubly important to figure out ways to keep these stories, these legacies, and maybe further discoveries alive uh, as we as we lose first-person participants from all that. So I, I would suggest, not so humbly, that uh, this is a this book for in particular is uh, a log on that uh, fire that uh, will continue to burn hopefully in the years to come once uh, the original participants are fully no longer with us. But I I just I can't imagine that this will be the last. Uh, of your uh, work in and around this space, even beyond this book. Yeah, you know, this, there's still more players alive than people realize. And uh, while we are losing a lot of guys, there, there, there's still several hundred alive who played in the mid to late 50s and early 60s. And, you know, I, I think as fewer and fewer um, remain, the players living, um, hopefully we can, we can get more attention on, on documenting their their career via interview and and documenting their stories um, in film and whatnot. Um, you know, something as like a, a lone wolf throughout this whole thing, I, I look back and at my early days, a lot of players that I spoke with, you know, all I really had is that, you know, that conversation over the phone and I, you know, I didn't, you know, formally record their interview and now they're passed away. So, um, you know, I hope in the future, with more resources and uh, unfortunately fewer players we can we can you know preserve some more of those interviews and and give this the attention that, that it deserves all right all right all right the book is called comeback season subtitled my unlikely story of friendship with the greatest living Negro League baseball players. It is written by Cam Perrin, our guest this week, uh, with the assistance of Nick Childs and the forward by the late, great Hank Aaron, of all people. Can you believe it? Uh, it is published by Gallery Books, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, so it's a big deal. It is available wherever books are found, of course. And uh, yes, you, of course, can find it on uh, our website or off of our website at uh, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode with Cam Perrin and uh, you'll find a convenient link that will take you right to Amazon. It'll give us a couple of shekels of, uh, of goodness. We appreciate that. Thank you. You'll be uh, able to get that book about as humanly, uh, as fast as humanly possible, whether that's in Kindle or um, uh, hardcover or paperback version. I forget what versions it's available in, but get one, get get some for your friends. It's a, it's a tremendous read. The story is incredible, uh, truly hard to believe. Uh, and um, it's great. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch with Cam. Um, I I'm sure he's got more great uh, stuff uh, up his sleeve uh, around this story and uh, and some of the great um, uh, people and, and figures and, and personalities involved that uh, uh, that sure just, you know, are just foundational around the Negro Leagues. And uh, it's, it's these are great stories. And I, I suspect that there are plenty more still. Uh, yet to be uh, discovered and, and unveiled and revealed, um, if you will, over the years to come. Um, Cam can also be uh, followed on Twitter at the Cam 
111, the T-H-E, Cam, C-A-M, triple one, the Cam 111. Uh, On Twitter, you can also uh, go to his website. That's camparron.com, C-A-M as in Mary, P-E-R-R-O-N, camparron.com. Uh, there's also a Facebook page, uh, Cam Parents Negro League page. Can you believe that? It's perfectly, uh, perfectly uh, uh, labeled. And um, uh, Cam also has a uh, an e-commerce, uh, sports-related business out in LA. I, I, I'm sorry, I don't have any of the particulars of that, but I'm sure if you searched up uh, him uh, on the interwebs, there you'll find uh, connections into that as well. And like I said earlier, uh, by all means, go out of your way to find his um, TED talk from. Gosh, I want to say it was 2000, uh, I don't know, 9, 10, maybe uh, 11, 2011, 2000. I don't know when it was. Uh, it's only about six minutes long, but it literally uh, just crystallizes his story, uh, which obviously goes into much more depth uh, in the book. And that's worth watching, too. And uh, again, you'll scratch your head and go, wow, can this really be true? And uh, luckily for all of us, it is. And uh, we wish Cam uh, the best of luck with this book. And hopefully we'll have another conversation or two. Uh, down the road to hear about sort of those journeys, too. I suspect some uh, fun and frivolity to come from uh, this book tour uh, as well. Let's see. You want to keep following us and uh, interact with us? We appreciate that by by all means. Again, that website, goodseatstillavailable.com. That's the locus uh, for this show. Uh, You can find all of our social media feeds there. On Instagram, you'll find us at goodseatstillavailable. On Twitter, you'll find us at goodseatstillavailable. Uh, there's a Facebook page devoted to us as well. Follow us there if you'd like. Uh, Want to send us some email? We'll go right ahead. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Watch the spelling. Uh, let's see. You can also sign up for our uh, weekly email newsletter. Uh, there's a tab or a button somewhere on our website. You can uh, opt into that. Why don't you? And uh, our uh, continued thanks, as always, to our pal Jerry Payne uh, for his uh, knob twiddling and uh equalizing this week we appreciate your help of course as always and uh we thank you of course for listening all the way through uh to this week's episode and all the other episodes if you haven't listened to uh some of our other 200 plus shows by golly go right about go right ahead and subscribe to us hey you know please do us a favor would you um rate and review us that'd be great some five star ratings would certainly help uh it helps the algorithm and stuff wherever you do that whether it's an apple or google or Spotify or Pandora or Stitcher, whatever you do, wherever you do, uh, just please do that and tell your friends, why don't you too? That helps as well. We appreciate that. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Uh, Hope it's warming up where you are and you're please, please, please staying safe. Until next week, take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.